grab your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 10 today. A lot of great verses here. Some of these uh, are like refrigerator verses, things that you have heard um, since Sunday school days, if you grew up going, going to Sunday school. A lot of scripture memory verses in here as well. John chapter 10. We're going to read together verse uh, 1 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, down the middle column of seats are a couple Bibles on top of each other. You're welcome to grab one of those and use it as we're studying the Word today. Um, If you don't have a Bible at all, you you are very welcome to take that with you and and have it. Um, In that Bible, I think it's, I don't know, probably 580, 590-something. We'll be around there. Or you can look at the table of contents in the front. We're going to read these out loud together. That's our tradition. Starting with verse 1. Here we go. (laughs) Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he, he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is God's word. Let's pray. So, Lord, sometimes we come uh, and, I mean, we gather with the church because we're supposed to do that as as believers. But sometimes we go through the motions. And I pray that uh, for myself to, to everyone in here, even back in the kids' ministry today, that we wouldn't go through the motions, God, that we would genuinely desire and encounter with you. I pray that your words would press us today, that you would 
give us, for those who've read these words many times and perhaps memorized some of these verses, God, that you would give us a fresh perspective of, of what you're saying. Um, I, I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our ears to what you would have for us individually, but also corporately today and in the hearing of your word that you would change us. And I pray that in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So there was this pretty cool article. Not cool. It was it was fascinating in that it unfolded seven typical fears that many of us carry around inside. And I think it was right on. It was several years ago. These aren't in any particular order, but it starts with the fear of financial ruin. And if you have this fear, then you really are struggling. You know, you're 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 struggling with, man, am I going to keep my job as the economy goes up and down? Am I going to be able to 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 do what I got to do just to keep money in my pocket and pay my bills and and put food on the table? The second fear is fear of self. Um, in this regard, uh, the the noted. Uh, reformer Martin Luther said, I fear more what's within me than what comes from without. And there's a lot, there's a lot in Martin Luther's words right there. But what he's, what he's getting at is when I have a fear of myself, um, I'm doing the, the, really the what ifs. What if something happens to me? What if I just like go crazy? I go off the deep end. Um, something happens that I can't, I can't keep up with my faith. I, I, I bail on it. I fail my family. Those are the fears that come along with fear of the self. Then there's fear of failure. And honestly, many of us struggle in many areas of life that we would have a fear that we would just fail. Our job, our family, and our parenting um, fail to be a good friend. Fear of loss. Fear of loss would be uh, the fear that I'm going to lose those things which are most important to me. Fear of man. And that sounds like it might be the fear of being killed, like going to combat and somebody taking me out. But really, it's, it's the fear of not being liked. And honestly, almost every one of us in here at some point in our life have been subject to this, this particular fear of fe- fearing that I'm going to lose the favor of men, uh, of their goodwill, of their good intentions, of their help and of their friendship. Really, a fear of man is wanting to be in the in-group versus being in the out-group. I want to be amongst those that, you know, that are in it, in it to win it, and I don't want to be an outcast lying on the outside um, and not being able to, to do what everybody else is doing. Uh, the sixth one will be fear of failure, and then almost like the, the fear of self, uh, a person that has a fear of the future is playing the what-if game. What if, what if this, what if that, and they fear almost everything. Uh, what if I never get married? What if I'm always alone? What if uh, I never meet all the goals that I've set for myself? What if I don't live up to who other people say I'm supposed to be? And then lastly, fear of death and disease. And uh, a person that fears death and disease, I mean, and I, I've known some people who, who have had this fear. They, they just have this hard thought that at some point, I mean, something bad is going to happen to them. They're going to step on the trains. The train's going to have a, going to tumble over and get crashed. They're going to be in a car and get a car wreck. They're going to be in an airplane. The airplane's going to like dive and, and crash. They have this horrid fear that something's going to happen to them that's going to, to take them to their death. Um, the truth is we're a fearful bunch, aren't we? Um, perhaps you identified with a few of these. You might have seen one that you've struggled with or maybe that you're struggling with now, but I think the truth is, um, Americans, pr- pr- I mean, maybe even the world, 
we can be subject to a lot of different fears. Um, I know some of these were fears that I, I have struggled with in my life, and that's why I thought it was a pretty fascinating list that whoever did this poll came up with a, a, a generic list, but definitely a list that, that hits most of us. Now, the reason why I start out with this today is I think we have hit a passage in John chapter 10 that gives us a privilege of looking at one of Jesus' great teachings that also addresses some of the greatest fears that many of you and I um, experience in life. And before we dive into the text, the first thing that we notice, Jesus says, truly, truly. He's, he's used those two words a lot in the last two chapters, from, really from chapter 6 uh, on to, to chapter 10. And we've said before that when he's saying truly, truly, he's, he's like, He's like knocking on a door or, or it's like, hey, check it out. I'm going to say something very important. If you've got pen and paper, you might want to write this down. I mean, that's the kind of attention that he's trying to get to those that are hearing him. But in this case, he's doing the same thing. But more, more importantly than paying attention to Jesus' words, he actually is giving us the, a, a, a sense of the setting. Uh, when Jesus says truly, truly, typically he's not starting a new conversation. He's not going to start a new conversation. Uh, conversation. He's not starting a new uh, discourse, as Bible theologians would say it. He really is continuing on something that he has already started. In this case, Jesus is continuing the conversation that he had in chapter 9 with uh, the chief priests, the religious Jews, the the Pharisees. And so, quick review, what happened in chapter 9? Well, Jesus opened the eyes of a man born blind. Uh, In chapter 8, verse 59, Jesus had just uh, talked about himself being a light of the world. He had some very pointed words for those who were listening. And the uh, the people who were listening, they didn't like it. So they picked up stones and they were going to stone him. And chapter 8, 59 tells us that Jesus hid himself. He escaped and hid himself. But obviously he did not hide himself uh, to the point that he went into seclusion. He just walked a different route. And along this route, he comes along a man who's blind from birth. And we don't know exactly how he did it, but this is what the text says. He, he spat on the ground. He made some mud like a two-year-old. He took that mud and he put some on that man's eyes and they told him, hey, check it out. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. You'll be clean. You'll be, you're going to be able to see. And it, as crazy as it sounds, the man believed him and he did it. He went and washed in the pool of Siloam. His eyes were open. Now, if that happened with us in here, we would all, I mean, our lips would drop to the floor. And they'd be like, oh, my gosh, did you see what happened? Oh, my goodness. Um, that didn't happen with this crowd. I mean, the first thing the man did is what anyone would do if you had a miracle happen to you. He started talking about it. I mean, he's chatting it up everywhere. He goes to his old neighborhood, say, hey, check it out, guys. I can see. I got some eyes. Well, I had eyes, but now my eyes are working. And uh, and the neighbors, I mean, there's nothing. There's no compassion. There's no welcome. All there is is just tension. And the neighbors, they're just like, are you sure you're the guy who used to be blind? And they 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 don't believe he's the same person so much. They take him to the Pharisees and the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisees really act the same way. And the Pharisees are really put off by the, and they're asking him questions, interviewing him. I mean, who healed you? When did you get healed? And when they find out that this man, Jesus, healed the man, the former blind man, 
on a Sabbath, they couldn't get around that anyone would do and act like that and violate the, the God's law by healing on the Sabbath. And so then they, they interview his parents and his parents. I mean, they've got, you know, several of these fears that I just called off. One of their fears is the fear of man. And the, the, his parents, they don't want to get kicked out of synagogue. And so what do they do? They say, well, he's of age. You can just ask him. All we know is he was born blind. And I think he I, I think he sees now. And and lastly, um, there's uh, another interchange between Jesus and uh, the Pharisees. And they, again, are so put out by the fact that that he's given allegiance and it seemingly worship to this guy named Jesus that they kick him out of the synagogue. I mean, he is literally excommunicated from the church. And that really is. I mean, that's that's what brings us up to John chapter 10. And so in John chapter 10, really, Jesus is is he's continuing his his thought. He's responding to these Pharisees who had just kicked a blind man whose eyes were open and was doing nothing but testifying to the work of God in his life out of the synagogue. And this really is a rebuke. So much of all of John chapter 10 is a rebuke to those who are religious. There's a lot we could look at. There's some great verses here. Many of these you've learned as scripture memory verses. But we're going to concentrate on on three things. Uh, The problem with sheep the door to life, and the good shepherd. Let's start with the problem of sheep, uh, verse 1 through 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hears voice, and he calls out his sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out, all goes, uh, when he has brought Uh, out all his own. He goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice and a stranger they will not follow, but they'll flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And so Jesus begins this rebuke of the Pharisees by painting a picture. And this picture would have been very clear to, to, to the ancient Jews because they grew up, you know, raising sheep and all this stuff. It would have been very clear to the first century folk because they were still doing the, th- the things that God had told them, kind of sort of, in the, in the Old Testament. They were still doing that in the first century. But when we read this, you know, sheep folds and pens and uh, a gatekeeper and all this stuff, it actually sounds a little foreign. I mean, even if you grew up on a on a farm and wherever there are farms in, in America. Um, some of this sounds foreign. So I'm going to show you some pictures. Here's a picture of a sheepfold. All right. So check it out. It would have, you know, it would have been sort of similar to this. And I don't know if you can see this dude right here, but this is the gatekeeper. It looks like he's sleeping. He's like chilling out. Right. Uh, but he's actually performing a very important function. He's keeping the sheep from going uh, out of out of the door there. Sheep were extremely valuable uh, to, to this culture. If you think about it, uh, they, their, their hair could be used for wool. Uh, they would use their milk as a commodity, but also to feed their family. And because of the Jewish sacrificial system, obviously they sacrificed these sheep in their worship of God. But let's bring this to the 21st century. Let's say all of us in here, every family that's represented, 
right here. We all live in the same neighborhood, same village, like right. We could walk home to our village in Kingstown and all of us had 20 sheep. All right. You got that picture in your mind? So check it out. I grew up in Chapel. I grew up in Durham, but I spent every weekend and almost all my summers in the country of Chapel Hill. Country meaning outside the city. We had a well for water, dirt road, and my grandparents had almost every animal. It wasn't a farm, but they just had animals, and they had pens with these animals. Chickens and pigs. Um, is a pig same thing as a hog? Okay. All right. So they, they called them different things. Chickens, pigs, hogs, and of course, dogs. And I mean, if you got those kind of animals around your yard, then th you're going to find what you find when you find animals around your yard like that. You're going to find like poop everywhere, right? Um, animals scratching and digging and eating up stuff that you might not want them to eat up. And so back to our village. So all of us, all families represented in this room got 20 sheep each in the same village. Can you imagine that? It's going to be a little bit noisy, but more importantly, it's going to be a little stinky. It's going to be messy. And so how did the Jews rectify this? They, I mean, they, it would have been the same thing for them. They created a sheepfold, a sheep pen outside the city gates, okay, outside the village. So just tucked outside of wherever their village was, they created this public venue that would have been big enough to hold all of the sheep that, for the professional shepherds to come in and out to, to get their sheep. There would have been a gatekeeper, someone to, to keep guard. And when a particular shepherd wanted to come get his sheep, he would come and he would, guess what? He would call them out by name, which is, that just sounds miraculous to me. But I mean, it, it shouldn't be miraculous, but this is what they do. And so a sheep would come and he's like, all right, uh, snubby tail. Uh, you, Sloopfoot, um, tall dude over there, come on out. It's time to go graze some, some, graze some grass and eat. And guess what? Their ears would perk up. These little fat, woolly sheep would come on out, and they would follow their shepherd to green pasture. I said there's a problem with sheep. Here's a problem. Y'all know this. You've read it before. Sheep are not the smartest animal in the animal kingdom. If we would compile all the things that we know about sheep, this is what it would tell us. They aren't strong. They aren't independent. They don't hunt. They aren't fierce at all. They're actually kind of pathetic. They're entirely dependent upon a shepherd or a shepherd-like figure for several reasons, mostly because of the size. So they're, the size and the activity of their brain. Why did God do that to sheep? He meant for them to be eaten. Mm -mm. And, this, and the, the, like the, the size of their body. Um, so here's the real problem with sheep. They're dumb. I, I, I shouldn't say that in church, in public, but sheep are dumb. Check out this story. Hundreds of sheep followed their leader off a cliff in eastern Turkey. This is a real story. It happened. Plunging to their deaths this week, several shepherds looked on in dismay. 400 sheep fell 15 meters to their deaths in a ravine in, in the Van province near Iran, but broke the fall of another, an, another 1,100 animals who survived. Shepherds from a nearby village neglected the flock while eating breakfast, leaving the sheep to roam free. The loss to local farmers was estimated at $74,000. I mean, can you picture that? You got one sheep that roams, 
He's going to do what a sheep does. He says, Rome falls off the cliff, and because sheep follow sheep, there's like 399 others that fall, you know, that fall. And so they've created this nice, nice, soft, pillowy, downy kind of pillow cushion. And then the other 1,100 just fall on top of them and crush those jokers, and they die. That proves to us, come on, sheep are dumb. All right, but sheep aren't also, they, they just aren't dumb. According to the story, they're also directionless. Um, without a shepherd that's managing them and keeping them under constant surveillance, they'll wander off and be lost. Now, here's the thing with sheep. I'm making fun about them, but unfortunately, in this illustration that Jesus is telling, he's likening us to sheep. He's saying, we are sheep. That's what he's alluding to in verse 6. Here's what the Old Testament says, Isaiah 53, 6, very important scripture. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This is the picture that the Bible gives of people like you and I when left to ourselves. The biblical metaphor is that we are sheep we're prone to wander, and as the illustration here of these sheep in, in, on the border of Turkey and Iran, we will oftentimes go into dangerous places and regions that we have no sense in going. But, but here, let me offer this to you, and, and some of you are going to push back on this. Uh, we're dumb, too. I mean, if we're sheep, we gotta, we got to embrace the whole thing. We're directionless, but we're also dumb. And I know, I know the crowd I'm talking to. You all are fluent and you're smart and you got high positions in the military and the government and business and all that kinds of things. But here, here's, a, here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes and roll the videotape of your mind and think back just five years and interview yourself and listen to yourself in, in a particular setting. And sure enough, in those five years, you've come across a time when you've said something, did something, that you know you shouldn't have said or should not have done, and it came out idiotic, probably even dumb, right? And you wish you could take it back. And that's, that's, I think that's the epitome of being a sheep. Um, oftentimes we think we know what we're doing. Um, we think we know we're right, but when you look back on it, it's like, oh man, that was dumb. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. And before you know it, we're wandering off by ourselves and we're falling off the ravine. We're falling off the cliff, and there's probably some other sheep behind us. Being a sheep is a big problem, but there's a bigger problem. And here's the third problem with sheep. They're defenseless. I'm actually going to unpack this in a couple verses down uh, in this next section. But here's what this means. Left to themselves, sheep will not and cannot last very long. I've had a lot of animals in my life and almost all of them have run away. I had a duck that ran away. I had a rabbit that ran away. I've had like eight or nine hamsters. A couple of them got away. They're probably in that in the house dead somewhere where I grew up. Um, most domesticated animals, even if they run away, can actually survive. I mean, they can figure it out. But you put a sheep in that environment and guess what's going to happen? They get out into nature and they have just become a scooby snack for whatever is out there. <laughs> It's going to just eat them up. And so what Jesus is alluding to, and we're going to get to this in verse 8, is he says, and this is important, that because we're sheep, this is the thing we got to look out for. Thieves and robbers, they're out there to kill us. And this, of course, is in reference to chapter 9. Everything Jesus says in chapter 10, he is thinking about those religious leaders, the Pharisees, the chief priests, 
the religious Jews, in chapter 9, and he's rebuking them. And he's likening them to thieves and robbers. And so, so think back to the blind man, the blind man who regained his sight. And all these chief pre, all the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the religious Jews could do was to, um, to give him a hard time, to ask him questions like, well, why are you giving all these props to Jesus? Why would you even trust a man that, that would heal you on the Sabbath instead of just celebrating the work of God? All they can do is question uh, the man, and they had no compassion. They end up kicking him out of the synagogue. And here's the point. These were the shepherds of Israel. They were the appointed men that God had put in position to take care of his flock. And Jesus' words here are a, a, an indictment. When he says they're thieves and robbers, they're an indictment to those who God had entrusted to care for his people. And so really what Jesus is saying here, he's not making this up. This isn't fresh. Jesus is using words from the Old Testament. Specifically, he's using words from Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34 says this. A lot of words here. I'm going to just read a few of them. Um, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you don't feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. And so Jesus is giving a, really a harsh critique uh, to these men who should have been taking care of the people that God had entrusted them with. And really, that's the same language that, um, that we see from John chapter 9 flowing into to John chapter 10. What I think we should take away from this is this is the same stuff going on today. Regardless of what circle you're in, if you're into politics, we see politicians all the time take advantage of their constituents all in the name of getting votes and getting elected to office. And unfortunately... If you've been in the church world, you've seen it, hopefully not up close and personal, but you've seen it through the news and through media of how sometimes people like in, in positions like me, pastors, shepherds of congregations will take advantage of the people that God has entrusted to them. And oftentimes it happens in the most intimate kinds of ways with our money and, and, and in sexual regards. And even if you haven't seen it in these circles, think of someone that you've entrusted like the deepest, darkest secrets of your life to your emotions and your private self. And you put your hope in their ability just to be your confidant and be there for you when you need to talk. And sometimes even that gets violated. And so in the midst of of thinking like that, these are robbers out there that are that are there to, to give us bring us danger and even to kill us. I mean, where is our sense of hope? The, the text does give us hope, and it's in uh, this next part, verses 7 through 10. The door to life, starting at verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life. And have it more abundantly. All right, so there's a lot, uh, a lot there that we're going to get through. Um, and I, you probably heard some verses that you've heard before, uh, even if you've never read this text before. Um, think about that sheep pen and go, though, though, first, as the first thought. Um, 
Now, the walls are, these walls seem pretty short, but a typical sheep pen outside of a village was about eight feet high. And the intent was keep the bad guys out and keep the good guys, you know, keep the sheep in. Now, what Jesus is saying is um, anybody that comes over the wall to get a, a sheep, and honestly, even if it's eight feet high, an athletic dude could just, I mean, he could hoist himself up, jump in, toss some sheep on out. I mean, he could do that. So Jesus is saying, hey, look, if somebody comes in and they come over the wall to get the sheep, they're coming to hurt you. OK, he's saying, check it out. There's one way in and there's one way out. And I even I, I even gave you a gatekeeper. And so if we're not going through the gatekeeper, then you should do what a good sheep does. Stray away, flee, uh, bah, do whatever you can to, to protect yourself. <laughs> To protect yourself. But he's also saying this. He's saying outside of that sheep pen, I mean, it's, it's a slaughterhouse kind of world. And that's kind of a gruesome image, especially if you're a sheep. Um, but what he's saying is there's no neutral ground. Now, a lot of times we have this perspective, even as Christians, we, we just get tired. You know, we get tired of the hype. Sometimes you just might, might get tired of the business of your life. You say, I got to cut something out. And sometimes we just say, you know what? I'm just going to take a break from church. I, I'm going to take a break from the God thing just for a little bit. I'll, I'll be church to myself in my own place. And, and what Jesus is, he's warning us from the, the danger of being a sheep and the, the vulnerability of our lives. And he's saying, check it out. You could do that, but there's no neutral place in your life. There's no safety outside of Jesus, who really is your ultimate shepherd. And the picture that he gives us is that you're going to be under constant attack as a vulnerable sheep. Let's hone in on verse 8. Verse 8 says this. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to him. This is the language of, of um, this language of thieves and robbers. It's the same language um, that we hear when Jesus is hung on the cross and he's beside two robbers. And what Jesus wants us to, to get is these aren't um, like petty robbers, like they you know, put a, a hood on their, you know, twist their cap backwards, might even put a little mask on their face to hide their total fa facial features. And they come in, and they steal five dollars a candy from the corner store. He said these aren't thieves and robbers like that. These are people who are intent to take you out They're, I mean, they're like Jack Bauer and 24 on, on, a, on, a, on one of his good days. Um, they are murderers and insurrectionists. It's the same words that, that we hear use of Barabbas. Remember Barabbas was the, the murderer who Pilate offered to um, the, the crowd. He said, all right, so I can release Jesus. And they said, no, give us Barabbas. It's the same kind of thing. Verse 10. Verse 10 obviously is the, the, the central uh, text uh, of this whole passage here. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Uh, the imagery here, Jesus is, is continuing to give us this imagery of how violent and dangerous these men were. What, what's a thief? It's someone that takes something, it steals something that's not their own. What's a robber? A robber really is doing the same thing a thief does, but a robber is doing it in a violent way. He's going to break into your house and he might even threaten you under gunpoint, might even kill you just to get what's inside your house so that he can take it, pawn it and use it as his own. And so Jesus is calling attention to the deviousness 
of the religious leaders. Okay, so he's hearkening back to these, the, the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the religious Jews. And he's saying, check it out, guys. These guys are not for you. They are against you. I mean, in fact, they, they are more against you than you actually realize. But here's the other application of this. This, this imagery is not just intended to talk about you know, bad religious leaders. He's actually talking about bad spiritual forces, as in Satan himself. Well, I mean, what does Ephesians 6 says? It says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers, against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I, I read that and I'm like, what does that mean? I mean, it, it means this, I mean, this stuff is real. I mean, it says, this is real stuff. You have a real enemy who's coming to get you, to get, you know, just for get, get you sake. He's doing it for spite and because it's, it's evil intent. And he comes to prey on your fears. Uh, take, I mean, take any fear that you might have in life. Maybe that list of seven that I gave you. Perhaps you have some other fear in your life. I mean, so what, what, is, what does it mean that the, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy? That means whatever your base level of fear is, he's coming to take away your hope. He's coming to kill any opportunity that you might have to, to get whatever you're hoping for. And he ultimately, he's trying to destroy your joy and to, to destroy you. And so the thieves, the thief himself, Satan, loves to prey on your fears, whatever your biggest fears are. Yet in this text, primarily in, in verse 10, Jesus says this. I'm the door. Actually, he says it in verse nine. He says, I'll provide the way in. I'll provide the way out for you. And Jesus will remind us later, there's only one door. He says, you can come in and find protection. You can come out to green pastures to nourish yourself. But the door to get in and out has to come through me. And uh Fast forward to John chapter 14. Jesus will say something very similar to these words when he says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to to God, the father, except through me. And for those of you that are listening very closely, that's an that's a very exclusive claim that Jesus is making. He's saying, I'm the way to get to heaven. I'm the way to get to God. He's saying, you can't give me enough money to get to heaven. He's saying, you can't be good enough to get to heaven. You can't worship some other God, Buddha, Confucius, Allah, Muhammad, any of those. You can't do that and expect to get to the, the perfection of, of, of God and his existence in eternity. I'm the door. You have to come through me. But the big idea in this passage actually is this idea of abundant life. Verse 10 um, I mean, this is, the, this is Jesus' greatest statement of why he came into the world. I mean, why did he come into the world? He says he came to give us abundant life. I mean, I just call it, he came to give us a good life. I mean, what does a good life look like? I mean, he doesn't necessarily unfold, unpack it here, but he's suggesting that he can give us a life that's good and pleasing when it's connected to him. Um, just thinking about how, of how I viewed church growing up, I mean, I think that most of us have... Um, one of two views. One's a secular view. The other's uh, a distorted view in the church. You know, a lot of times um, we we think abundant life is so counter to. Um, I mean, it just 
we don't think that the abundant life the Bible says it has for us is what we'll receive. Most people um, take this passage and they think about church and they say, well, I mean, check it out. And so I can I can have fun with my friends and hang out and do whatever I want or I can go to church and be bored and the stuff you do in church. Or I can go party and hang out and rebel and have a good time. I mean, we have this we have this idea of that church is boring. And so what Jesus is doing, um, it, he's he's taking that that phrase you've seen on the T-shirt like I can go, you know, I might be going to hell, but at least I'll be partying. I mean, Jesus is trying to blow that lie up and say, hey, check it out. You might think that, but I, I'm actually offering you life. And it's a life that you've never you've never tasted it before unless you've tasted it. But here's a second view um, that we might have of abundant life. And I, I say this cautiously and, and, and I, I don't say it judgmentally, but uh, a lot of times many of those in the prosperity and the faith movement camp will also buy into and a, a good life that's not necessarily the good life that Jesus is offering us here. Um, you've heard the phrase, obviously, by the popular pastor um, of, uh, of the book, the, Your Best Life Now, that Jesus has come and he's offering us a best life now. So what does a best life now look like? It looks like you, you, you got this perpetual smile on your face. Every day you wake up, it's happy. The sun is shining. Even if it rains, the sun's going to come out right after it does, and that rains for a purpose. Um, it's that God wants you to be financially prosperous, that you'll have no bad days at all. You, I mean, just life is good. And the faith movement would add to that, that God wants you to be um, not just financially prosperous, but rich. He wants you to have good health. He wants your, your children to be blessed, um, that that you are above and not beneath is what they would they would put it. That no weapon formed against you would prosper. And I mean, y'all listen to that and say, well, Jeff, I want that. I mean, honestly, I mean, that's that's stuff we should want. I, I'm not I'm not saying that we should not want those things. Here's what I'm saying. A lot of times we use this verse, John 10, 10, as um, as the telltale verse that I'm supposed to live an abundant life as a Christian. And in context, that's not what Jesus is talking about in regards to abundant life. In context, Jesus is talking about being the door to salvation. Look at verse nine. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And so he means that those who trust in him will be saved. You'll be safe and you'll be satisfied. I mean, that's the that's the reason for giving the uh, the picture of a sheep with a shepherd. And then he adds in verse 10 this idea of here's what my purpose is. My purpose is to make it such that you live um, a, a good life. And what does a good life look like? It, it's an abundant life where, where Jesus gives you nothing less than eternal life. What's an abundant life? In Jesus' eyes, it's eternal life. How does he give that eternal life? He dies on the cross. He stretches out his arms. He gives up his life. He allows people like you and me to beat him to death. And he bleeds for us. We have this idea that eternal life is, is more quantity. But here, when Jesus says, I'm going to give you life and life abundantly, what he's saying is, I want to raise the level of your life 
qualitatively. I don't just want to give you stuff, although it's, it would be cool that you all, I mean, affluent, that your life is blessed, you got everything you need. I, I pray that for you. But here, Jesus is offering us something better. It's an abundant life where he would raise the quality of our life. And this is the picture. It's a weak, pitiful looking sheep that's attached to a decked out shepherd. That's not going to let anything happen to us. It's a cool picture. That leads us to our last, our last um, section, a good shepherd. I'm going to go quick. I got to go quicker. Y'all need to stop talking. Verse 11. I am, a, I am a good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This charge I've received from my father. I want to reflect just on one thing. There's a lot in here. I just want to reflect on one thing. And this is the idea of the good shepherd. That's the, along with verse 10, that really is what Jesus is presenting about himself in this text. The first thing is uh, the word good. I mean, what does it mean to be good? In Mark, uh, the, uh, Mark 10, I think it is, Jesus uh, is talking to the, the rich young man and he he calls him good. And Jesus says, I mean, what's good? I mean, no one is good but God. You know, a lot of times we wear that word out because we use it for everything. I mean, that I had some Indian food last night with Dre and Febby and it was good. Actually, it was, it was great. I want some more. Um, the movie I saw was good. I, I pick up Zoe from school and her friend, Zoe, how was school today? Oh, it was good. Okay. We, we wear that phrase out such that it, we dumb it down. It, it, it doesn't mean what it means anymore. And so Jesus is meaning more than what we would assume he means when, we, when he says good. The, the word is the Greek word kalos. Uh, an alternate meaning would be handsome or beautiful. When we say that, that Jesus is beautiful, his name is beautiful, we're, we're, we're talking about this idea of, of him being good. What I would like to offer you is this idea. He's actually giving us a sense that it's an excellent thing. When he says he's good, he's saying, I am that excellent thing. I'm that shepherd that you get to interact with. That's there for you when you need me to be. I'm the, the, the shepherd, the excellent shepherd that will lead you to green pastures. Uh, and then he gives basically two examples to show what it means to be a good Excellent shepherd. I'm going to skip all the way down to verse 14. This is what verse 14 says. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. So the picture that he is giving us in this picture is that he knows the sheep completely. Um, just think about relationships. The more you know someone, the deeper, the more intimate the, the knowledge that person will get. Think about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. The, the Trinity, when you add the Spirit, they've known each other 
eternally. I mean, even if you don't like somebody, the more you know them, the, m- the more you know them. Okay. I mean, it's, and so Jesus is saying without doubt, without fail, he's like, I want to know you like that. I want to know you completely. I want to know you as closely as I know and I have known God the Father. And then he says this, and this is, this is one of his main thoughts. He says, I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. And this is the climax of the story. And it's the climax because he said this, he says this four times. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life and I take it up again. Verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge I received from my father. You know, this is these are these words are Jesus pleading for us to God, the father. He says, I'm going to lay down my life because God has given me something. I am God and God, the father has given me something for which I love my sheep, all those that he's given to me, there's this love for me that would that would be willing to pay the ultimate price for them by just dying on a cross. And so what I would offer you here is there's more going on than simply Jesus protecting sheep from wolves. Uh, one of the greatest pictures that we have of a shepherd king who protects Sheep is David. King David, remember him? I mean, he was the warrior who went out and killed, slayed bears and, and, and lions to protect actual sheep. Jesus is saying, you know what, David's a good picture, but I'm a better picture because I'm actually going to not just risk my life, but give my life in your place. And in that, that word, in your place, is an important word. In verse 11 and 15, there's this small three-letter word. It's the word for, preposition. In, in English grammar, in any grammar, prepositions are important. In this particular case, it's the Greek word hooper, a transliteration, H-U-P-E-R, and it means on behalf of. So when Jesus says in verse 11 and 15 in particular that he lays down his life for the sheep, it's the language of substitution. Jesus is saying, you know what? I'm not just a shepherd. I'm going to step into the shoes of those that I love the most, and I'm going to be the sheep that they can't be, and I'm going to die in their place for their sin. You see what's going on in this passage? Jesus is telling us he's not only the shepherd, but because of the great love that he and the Father have for us, he becomes the most lowly, weak, pitiful animal on the planet. He should know he created it, and he likens it to us, the people that he created and the ones that he would call to himself. And he says, guess what? I'm going to be your shepherd, but also at one point in life, I'm going to be your sheep. I'm going to be a sheep for you. I'm going to hooper. I'm going to die in your place for your sin. Let's look back. Think back to that list of fear. Actually, let me, let me do something first. Look at Isaiah 53, 6 again. We're going to close with this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The word iniquity means waywardness. It's the sin in us that wants to do what we want to do when we want to do it. This verse says God put that on Jesus and the punishment that goes along with it. Next verse. 
He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened his mouth. What's this saying? It's saying that Jesus substituted himself for us. He became a sheep for us to the point that he went to the slaughter and he opened not his mouth. Didn't complain. He did it silently. Now let's look back to that list of fears I opened up with. So when you picture the imagery of sheep and shepherds in John chapter 10, we can't help but think of probably one of the greatest passages in Scripture that tells us about shepherds and sheep, Psalm 23. And what it does for us, I mean, this list of fears kind of falls in the background when we know that the person that it's not only our shepherd, but that he became a sheep in our place for our sin is on our side. It just makes our fears go away. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I feel no evil. For you're with me. You're riding your staff. They comfort me. Repair a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Truly goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I don't know about you. I want a shepherd like that. That on my worst days, but even on my good days, he's going to be there. That though I'm weak and pitiful, and can't do anything for myself, even really because of that, that all I got to simply do is just say, the Lord is my shepherd. And I'm reminded that, man, I got it made. Let's pray. What a beautiful picture you've given us, Lord, of, of your relationship, the, the relationship that you desire to have with your people. And I pray over this congregation, um, firstly, for, for those who are who would recognize that they are a sheep, but they're outside the pen uh, and they're staring in and they got the gatekeeper there and they're saying, well, I want to get in the pen. I want to be in the safety of, of God, that you would draw them to yourself. Holy Spirit, would you do the work that none of, none of us can do? Not even my words today. Would you draw your people? Would you grant faith and repentance to believe in you? Would you call your sheep home? Bring them safely into the pen. Take them in to protection. Bring them out to the green pastures of nourishment. I pray for those here who are struggling with sin, who are struggling with fear, who would say that they're a sheep, but they're barely hanging on. I pray that that even as they take communion today, they would sit in their seat first and they would simply bring their fear and their sin to you. And they would do the thing that you've given us to do. Confess our sin, knowing that you're faithful and just to forgive us and purify us and cleanse us in our unrighteousness. And then that they would boldly come before you and receive communion. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.